Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. It's the Weeds. I'm John Glenhill. It's almost upon us, the most wonderful time of the year. Open enrollment. That means pretty soon, a lot of us will be shopping for our healthcare coverage, attempting to find the best plan, trying to remember what exactly a deductible is again, and deciding if that flexible spending account is worth it. And most Americans will be doing that through their jobs, In 2022, almost 55% of Americans got their insurance through an employer, meaning that your employment status and where you work are major factors in the kind of coverage you get. And that puts a lot of pressure on your employment. What if you have doctors that don't take the insurance offered by a prospective employer? What happens if you lose your job? It's a process a lot of us accept as a fact of life because it's been this way for decades. And today on The Weeds, we're exploring why. It's an interesting story that involves a wartime adjustment, fear of inflation, and everyone's favorite, tax policy. We're hopping in the trusty weeds time machine to look at the days before insurance existed, how it became so tied to our jobs, and when the single-payer option made its way back into the American imagination. For this particular journey back in time, I knew just who to call. My name is Dylan Scott, and I am a senior correspondent covering healthcare at Vox. Dylan says it's important to understand what was happening in the early 1900s when healthcare as we know it was starting to take shape. The whole idea of a a medical profession was pretty new. Like up to that point, you know, there'd been people might have gotten care at home. Maybe there was somebody in your community who served as more of like an informal healer kind of person. But like medical science was in its very rudimentary forms. You know, it was around that time, the turn of the century, when medical did start to become more professionalized. You saw the creation of, you know, formal medical schools, different kinds of credentialing and accreditation, and hospitals. More hospitals started to be constructed and started to become a center where people might receive critical kinds of healthcare if they were really sick or got injured or something like that. So around that time, people were sort of like, all right, maybe, you know, having to pay just full freight every time I show up at the doctor or go to the hospital isn't the best way to do this. 
So you started to see some early experimentation with different kinds of health insurance. One famous example, back in the Dallas area in the 1920s, there was this group of teachers who came to an agreement with Baylor University Hospital that like they could go to the hospital for so many days per year if they you know, were paying this monthly payment, an early version of a premium, in order to be guaranteed that kind of access. What emerged over time was the Blue Cross, a form of hospital-based insurance, like coverage specifically for hospital services. And in parallel, you know, the physicians, doctors out in the community, family doctors who didn't see people in the hospital, they saw that model emerge and they were like, hey, we like want to get in on the same idea. And so the Blue Shield version of plans emerged in the 1920s and 1930s. So this was a pretty, you know, informal, totally, you know, locally driven kind of organic system for providing an early version of health insurance for people. You know, it wasn't necessarily comprehensive, but like the insurance scheme that would emerge in the United States uh, was starting to take shape. So the function of hospitals and doctors changed. And in turn, so did how we paid for them. And then another major change came. This one was largely shaped by the Great Depression and FDR's New Deal. In 1932, as dole queues lengthened across America, 13 million were out of work. Nearly a third of the people relied on handouts from private charities. There was no welfare state to help them. His uh, allies in Congress, you know, they wanted the retirement program that would become Social Security. They wanted other forms of employment support, stuff like that. They were reluctant to include health insurance as part of the New Deal, even though it might have seemed like a natural fit. Nowadays, people think of social insurance as including health insurance. But in those days, it was a much less set idea. And they were trying to decide what to prioritize, what wasn't worth the risk, and while his advisors cited medical coverage as one possible area for legislative action as part of the Social Security Act, over time, its importance was de-emphasized. You know, they were facing already in those days backlash from doctors, from hospitals, who had partly encouraged these voluntary private insurance schemes in order to kind of stave off a more comprehensive government control of healthcare. And FDR just basically made the calculation that it wasn't worth fighting with the hospitals and the doctors over national health insurance when he had all of these other things he wanted to do as part of the Social Security Act and all the other related New Deal provisions. I would love to dig into something that shaped the way American healthcare functions in the middle of the century, and that's the U.S. entering World War II. We interrupt this program to bring you a special news bulletin. The Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii by air, President Roosevelt has just announced. A couple of important things happened. For one, obviously, like, a lot of men of working age who were the bulk of the labor force at that time were instead being deployed overseas to fight the war. And so a lot of women were entering the workforce at that time. Like, there was a real shakeup of the labor force and all of the labor dynamics. Tens of thousands of women are already at work in aircraft. More are being added as fast as they apply. Because we had like 7 million working age men fighting a war instead of working in factories or other jobs, there was a huge labor shortage. Businesses were desperate to find workers and were willing to do a lot and offer all kinds of enticements to try to get people to work in their jobs instead of any of the other many available jobs that were open to them at the time. 
that obviously creates a concern about inflation, which would obviously be a, a serious challenge to the economy when it's already on this war footing. So FDR, in what turned out to be a very consequential executive order, issued a directive that wages would have to be frozen. Employers started to work around those new restrictions, and they were offering employees other benefits other than just higher wages, and those included the offer of health insurance benefits. That kind of starts to become the norm. Employers see this as an attractive opportunity to attract a workforce. And so the Internal Revenue Service decides to lend them an additional hand. In a 1943 decision, the IRS said that health insurance benefits being offered by employers to their employees should be exempt for taxation. Now, suddenly, like, not only can you offer these additional benefits above people's wages to try to entice them, but then you can deduct the cost of those health insurance benefits from your taxable income. And so, very quickly, over the course of the 1940s, there were about 20 million Americans who had some kind of health insurance. And I think it should, we should be clear that, like, this could have been pretty bare bones. But nevertheless, like, they had some kind of health insurance in 1940, just 20 million people. By 1950, 140 million people had some kind of health insurance. Just as the war is ending, President Roosevelt dies and Vice President Harry Truman succeeds him and becomes the 33rd president. What was Truman's vision for that national health program? Truman, coming out of the victory in World War II, the economy is booming, he saw an opportunity to, to set up something new, to set up a true national health insurance program. What he envisioned was that there would be an addition to the Social Security program that would cover healthcare services for people and provide health insurance benefits in the same way that people were already receiving old age retirement benefits at that time through the program. People would pay payroll taxes to cover the cost of that insurance, and they would get a health insurance card from the government, and it would pay for any of the uh, medical services that people would need. Now, Truman, I think, already was, was facing some pretty serious headwinds. When you go back and read his speeches, like he was very intentionally trying to frame this as not socialized medicine. Truman wanted to be clear that, like, I am just proposing a national health insurance program where the government is going to be responsible for paying for people's care, but, you know, doctors are still going to be free agents. They'll have discretion about whether or not they want to participate in the program. They're not going to be employees of the government. But he was proposing to replace the voluntary private insurance plans that had come into effect over the preceding decades. And Truman was very specific that, like, we should create a national plan because that is going to create the biggest possible pool of patients to spread the risk around. Because, you know, the whole premise of insurance is that, like, everybody pays in, but only some people are going to take money out. And there will be enough people who pay money in and don't take out to cover the bills of those who do take money out. There was this brief window where this was a real point of emphasis for Truman. He tried to rally Democrats in Congress behind it shortly after the war was over. Um, but then in the next midterm elections uh, after the war, Republicans won control in Congress and the dream was pretty much dead. I've repeatedly asked the Congress to pass a health program. The nation suffers from lack of medical care. That situation can be remedied. Anytime the Congress wants to act upon it. Truman actually has said, uh, been quoted as saying later in his life that like the failure past national health insurance was his biggest regret of his presidency. And he remained very bitter toward the special interests who had stopped him. 
already you could see that the system was that we had had, that had been kind of put together in this piecemeal fashion, was nevertheless too entrenched to be dislodged. And you know, proposing a, a total makeover like Truman was, was going to be politically risky and likely to end in failure. After Truman came Dwight D. Eisenhower. And honestly, healthcare wasn't a big priority for his presidency. The economy was booming, and employer health insurance made a lot of sense. But despite the fact that it was on the back burner, one of the most crucial policies for how insurance works today was cemented during his administration. Okay, here's Dylan again. During his presidency, Congress took a very important step, which was in 1954, Congress passed a bill that enshrined the IRS's rule from World War II that health insurance benefits would not be taxed. That took what had been kind of an emergency wartime policy and made it the official policy of the United States going forward. And so I think that was, in a way, kind of the the point of no return. So this is set as the status quo, how does the passage of Medicaid and Medicare impact this? I think of Medicare and Medicaid, ironically, as kind of a concession to the idea of employer-sponsored insurance. By the 1960s, when LBJ is considering his Great Society legislation, the employer-sponsored market has been pretty well established, as we've been talking about. Like, millions upon millions of people are getting their health insurance through their work. And, you know, we've already seen the power of the healthcare industry in stopping major proposals to, to change that, both with FDR and with Truman. And so LBJ, I think, looked at the system and said, okay, like, we're going to leave the employer-sponsored market alone. But there are a lot of people who don't work or who don't make enough money to buy health insurance on their own, who might you know, have more transitional jobs, seasonal work, and they don't have the kind of employer who's offering them health insurance benefits. So you had older people who are you know, at retirement age, and you had people who were poor, who just didn't have enough money or didn't have an offer of health insurance through their work. Those were the gaps that LBJ and Congress were trying to fill with the Great Society legislation. Once those programs were created in the 1960s, you kind of had the healthcare system as it exists today. You had employer-sponsored insurance for working people, you have Medicaid for the poor, and you have Medicare for the elderly and disabled. Let's get into the attempt at reform during the Clinton years. What happened and how did that fall apart? Bill Clinton, you know, a new Democrat, swept into office, you know, had won the nomination and and then won the presidency on this promise of like, I'm not like those old welfare-minded Democrats. I'm a new Democrat who sees the value of private enterprise. I'm not like a regular mom. I'm a cool mom. He signaled up and down from his campaign into the early days of his presidency that, that healthcare was the thing that he wanted to do. We are the only advanced nation in the world that has refused to discipline itself to do those things which provide basic, primary, and preventive health care and provide a system of affordable health care for all. The crux of his plan basically was to create more standardized health insurance that people would either sign up through on their own, through these like regional alliances, or for people who worked at really big companies, they would continue to get health insurance through their work, but those health insurance benefits would again become more standardized, you know, costs would be more predictable, certain practices would be outlawed, you know, that deprived people of coverages or drove up their costs. Um, and so he was kind of trying to split the middle. So that was the outline of the plan. And in 
initially it looked like the public was on board because, you know, plenty of the problems that exist today with healthcare existed back then. You know, people felt like their coverage was unpredictable. The costs were higher than they should be. Like there was an appetite for healthcare reform at that time. Polling suggested that like 70% of the public was on board with Clinton's plan when he first started rolling it out. But once again, this healthcare industrial complex mobilized itself and launched an all-out public relations blitz against the, the Clinton plan. And the centerpiece of the health insurance industry's campaign against Clinton's plan was what's known as the Harry and Louise ads. This was covered under our old plan. Oh, yeah, that was a good one, wasn't it? Things are changing, and not all for the better. The government may force us to pick from a few healthcare plans designed by government bureaucrats. The weight of bureaucracy was, I think, the message that the health insurers were trying to convey. Um, the idea that, like, your choices were going to be taken out of your hands by the government. You were just going to have all this bullshit to deal with if the government got too involved with healthcare. And as it turned out, that message was really effective. I've seen polling that showed that, like, from that 70% support that the public expressed for Clinton's healthcare plan early on in his presidency, that had dropped to, like, 40%. A year later, after two years of fighting about this, you know, and it being covered wall to wall in the news media, Democrats got wiped out in the 1994 midterms. That was sort of the public's final verdict on what Clinton was proposing was we are going to sweep your party out of power and sweep in the Republicans who have been campaigning alongside the healthcare industry against what you've been proposing. So I think ultimately it was like this was just more evidence that like if you get too ambitious with your healthcare plan, if you're pursuing as changing the status quo too much, then you're going to fail and you're going to pay a political price on top of that. So you can't talk about health care reform without talking about Obamacare. Up next, the modern era. Stick with us. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. 
Burroughs' new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash weeds. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. So we've established this pretty clear timeline of presidents failing to pass their vision for healthcare reform. But then 2008 rolls around. Barack Obama is elected president. And as he's campaigning, he's talking about a new health care plan. And it eventually becomes what a lot of us know now as Obamacare. And, you know, something about the Affordable Care Act has stuck around in a way that past reforms or attempts at reforms haven't. What is it? What makes this different? So I think the most important decision that Obama and his team made was they set realistic goals. I'll be a president who finally makes health care affordable and available to every single American the same way I expanded health care in Illinois. He would talk during the campaign about like, you know, if I were starting from scratch, yeah, I'd probably set up a single-payer healthcare system. But like, that's just not realistic. You know, people are used to what they've had now. If they like, they like their plan, they want to keep their plan. And so instead, the ACA was basically designed to continue plugging holes that exist around employer-sponsored insurance. You know, employer-sponsored insurance was largely going to be left alone. If you got insurance through your work before the ACA, you were going to continue to get insurance through your work after the ACA. But for like, you know, people who are self-employed, whose job doesn't offer health insurance, those are the people who the ACA was really targeted to. In the individual insurance market, you know, insurers had kind of had free reign up until that point to do whatever they wanted. You know, they could have really limited benefits. They could just deny you coverage if they saw that you were sick and likely to have a lot of medical needs and therefore be really expensive to them. So for people who buy individual coverage, which is, you know, like 20 million people these days, which is not an insignificant number, but obviously nothing compared to the like 150 million plus who get employer-sponsored insurance, it had really important protections for them. You know, the pre-existing tradition rules that I think people have become familiar with, where it's like, you can't be denied coverage, you can't be charged a higher premium, you have to have this certain set of benefits offered to you from an individual health plan. And on top of that, they created subsidies to make individual health insurance plans more affordable for people. But that's really where the energy of the ACA lied, was with individuals who buy their own in health insurance. And for people who had employer-sponsored insurance, they were largely left alone. There was one really important rule, the preventive services provision as part of the ACA that did apply to all health insurance plans and said that like, if you're getting a certain preventive service, like your yearly physical or vaccines and stuff like 
like that, like that should be covered for free. But by and large, otherwise, employer-sponsored insurance was left alone. They created these new protections and this new financial assistance for the individual market for people who bought insurance by themselves. And then it also expanded Medicaid because, you know, we had this sort of disparate system of our Medicaid program where like some states have really generous eligibility lim- uh, thresholds and, and benefits and some states are much more stringent. And so what the ACA attempted to do was create a more like universal Anybody who's living in poverty or near poverty will be covered by the Medicaid program. It didn't quite work out that way because of some legal challenges, but in effect, like that's kind of what the ACA has done. Republicans were not happy with the ACA at the time of its passage. And in a little bit, we'll get to the parts that they kind of have ended up uh, liking and sort of uh, being okay with. But first, I want to talk about their initial response. What was it? I mean, Republicans basically tried to pull out the same playbook that the healthcare industry had pulled out, you know, three or four times already. You know, they denounced the ACA as socialized medicine. Obamacare is just part of a vision for the forced sharing of American assets. As a government takeover of health care. It's about the government running it. Once the government has control over your health care, they control every aspect of your life. They were warning, obviously, about death panels. Here's the problems I have with the Affordable Health Care Act. Number one, there is a provision in there that anyone over the age of 74 has to go before what is effectively a death panel. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. It's in there, folks. You're wrong. I think what was striking and the other smart decision that the Obama administration made was they kind of cut deals with the healthcare industry. Like health insurers were probably the most resistant because their industry was was facing the most change as a result of the ACA. But like with the pharmaceutical industry, the Obama administration basically cut like a side deal of like, we're going to propose this tax increase on you to help pay for all of this, but no more than that. Like you don't have to worry about price controls or any of the things that the pharmaceutical industry worries about. And so therefore the pharma, which has, you know, as much money as anybody in the healthcare industry kind of sat on the sidelines. Doctors, by and large, and even insurers in the end, I think kind of recognized a couple of things. One, there were a lot of problems with the system that existed before the ACA. I think people recognized that like, just denying individuals health coverage because they don't get it through their work, they have to buy it on their own, but they're sick, was not tenable, was not humane. And Obama came into office with a lot of momentum. Obviously, the country was was in a state of crisis economically, but like he had won with a broad mandate, a big margin, huge majorities in Congress. Things had never been right for any of Obama's predecessors. Like the atmosphere, the environment just wasn't right for trying to pull off what they were trying to pull off. But Obama both had some, the wind at his back, politically speaking, because he was so popular, because the economic crisis was so great that people had a little more appetite for big actions. And at the same time, like he, he and his team set these, you know, somewhat more realistic goals for the healthcare changes that they were going to make. And one of the most important things was not touching employer-sponsored insurance. And so they were able to overcome that Republican opposition. They were able to kind of sideline the healthcare industry, which is something that his predecessors had failed to do. And that's, I think, why the ACA got across the finish line. Now, it should just be noted, it was close. Like, they practically didn't do it. When Scott Brown won the Senate election in Massachusetts, like, it suddenly looked like the ACA might be dead. So even a sort of smaller bore reform that 
purposefully kind of courted the industry um, in order to diffuse their opposition. Like even that proved really challenging to get across the finish line, which in light of everything that we've talked about over the preceding decades, maybe shouldn't be that big of a surprise. The ACA has had its fair share of challenges, including legal ones. And, you know, it's made its way to the Supreme Court twice so far. What were the cruxes of those challenges? And why are those decisions so important? There were two big cases, as you say. The first one was a challenge to the individual mandate, which was an important part of the ACA. The idea that the government could require somebody to purchase something like health insurance had not really ever been tested before. And so Republicans and conservative jurists who were opposed to the ACA on ideological grounds and business groups who were opposed to it on, I would say, a mix of ideological and more practical grounds sued and basically said, like, the government can't require people to purchase health insurance. And if the government can't be allowed to do that, then all of these other provisions within the ACA can't stand either because the individual mandate is so critical to the design of the Affordable Care Act that if the individual mandate's unconstitutional, then the whole law is unconstitutional. But the Supreme Court, in a surprising decision, I think. And if anybody was paying attention at the time, there was a lot of confusion about the court's decision in the immediate minutes after they issued it. But uh, the Supreme Court decided, like, no, this is a legitimate use of Congress's taxing authority. You know, if the government wants to charge you a small penalty for failing to purchase health insurance, it's allowed to do that. There was also a challenge to the Medicaid expansion program. Basically, the state said, like, the government can't force us to do this. Medicaid is supposed to be like a joint federal-state program with states having a fair amount of discretion over how their Medicaid program is run. And the way that the ACA you know, achieved Medicaid expansion was basically to say, you have to expand Medicaid or we're going to take away all of your Medicaid funding. Which, you know, from a state's perspective is totally untenable. The states received hundreds of millions of dollars from the federal government for their Medicaid programs. And so taking that away, would they wouldn't be able to survive that. Their budgets wouldn't be able to handle it. And so John Roberts agreed with these states that were challenging the Medicaid expansion provisions, said the, the government can't hold a gun to states' heads and force them to expand Medicaid. And so Medicaid expansion became optional. The other case that did pose an existential threat to the law, it's deep in the weeds, it's safe to say. <laughs> the theory of the case was brought by a couple of libertarian-leaning law professors who thought they saw basically like a, a flaw in the way that the law was written. Technically, under the ACA, either states could decide to set up their own individual markets or if they decided not to do it, the federal government would step in and do it for them. You know, the hope was that states would want to do it, you know, to tailor make their individual insurance market to their state. But there was a backstop of the federal government doing it if states decided they didn't want to play ball. The challengers who, who brought this 2015 case, they argued that if the federal government had to step in and create a state's individual insurance marketplace, then the financial assistance that is supposed to be available under the law was not permitted. It couldn't be offered. Once again, the Supreme Court, and in a bit more forceful fashion, the Supreme Court said, like, this doesn't really work. Like, clearly, Congress was trying to create health insurance markets with financial assistance available to people. Like, this very narrow reading of the law is just not 
at all in the spirit of what the law is clearly trying to accomplish, and they once again decided in the ACA's favor. After those two existential threats, which both of which did end up getting to the Supreme Court, the law also had to survive the repeal attempts of 2017 after President Trump took office and Republicans held control of Congress. But something interesting had happened, you know, as controversial as the ACA was when it first passed, you know, seven years later when Republicans were trying to roll it back. By that point, like a lot of people were getting health insurance through the ACA. Either they were enrolling in private plans on the insurance markets or they had gotten coverage through Medicaid. It's like an inversion of the same phenomenon that we've talked about already, where people were nervous about changing the status quo. By that time, the ACA had become the status quo. And so when Republicans were proposing major changes and rolling back some benefits that people had started to get used to, they ran into political headwinds and ultimately failed when John McCain gave his thumbs down. While the GOP was focused on repeal and replace, at least one senator on the Democratic side had grand ambitions. In my view, we must move forward toward a Medicare for all single-payer program. Spoiler alert, it didn't happen. But it did have an effect on the narrative. Up next, the single-payer debate and what's next for healthcare reform. Okay, Dylan, so the single-payer option has gotten a lot of buzz, especially during Senator Bernie Sanders' 2016 campaign. What is it exactly, and how does it work in other developed countries? So just at the same time that the ACA was becoming pretty well entrenched, yes, you have Bernie Sanders run for president in 2016, and one of the centerpieces of his campaign is Medicare for All. Count me in as somebody who believes there is something very wrong when the United States of America is the only major country on earth that does not guarantee health care to all people as a right. What Bernie was and still is, if you asked him, I'm sure, proposing, is a national health insurance program, much like what Harry Truman was talking about 70 years prior. The basic idea is that every American would get their health coverage through a government program that already exists, Medicare. The funding for that program would come from a mixture of employer payroll taxes, other fees and taxes on the healthcare industry. But it's it's really kind of going back to the idea of like, everybody's going to have the same insurance plan. You're going to have the same benefits. You know, your cost obligations might vary a little bit. People who make more money might be asked to pay a little bit more. But if you make less money, you're probably going to get most of your health care for free. He was trying to channel all of that frustration into a grassroots campaign for totally changing the system. You know, he disregarded the lessons of the past hundred years and said like, no, people are fed up. And if we want a simpler, better system, this is how we set it up. You know, there are, I think, obviously a a, a number of different models. Like, single-payer means something specific. It means, like, the government is the single-payer of healthcare in a given country. But, like, I've done reporting and I've gone abroad and seen, like, there are a lot of different ways that other countries achieve universal healthcare. You know, like, Taiwan has a single-payer system, much like Medicare for All, as Bernie Sanders has proposed it. There's countries like Australia that have both, like, a universal health 
insurance program that covers basic medical needs for everybody, but then they also allow a private insurance market to exist where like basically people who make more money can purchase an additional private plan that might give them access to particular doctors or private hospitals. And so they're trying to kind of like, you know, straddle that gap. Like we're both going to provide coverage for everybody, but at the same time, we're going to give people a measure of choice if they want it and if they can afford it. Another example or another model is like the Dutch model. Like the Netherlands technically has all private insurance, but their private insurance is much more strictly regulated than what we have in the US. Like the government basically decides these are the premiums, these are the deductibles, these are the amounts that health plans are going to pay to doctors and hospitals. So while, you know, private health plans are responsible for administering the program, the government kind of sets the rules of the road in a much more direct way than the United States does. So yeah, I mean, I think the fact that uh, Sanders got as much attention and a much, as much support as he did both in 2016 and in 2020, and just the fact that this whole kind of conversation percolated in the democratic policy circles of like, you know, if you weren't for Medicare for all, you better have an alternative plan, you know, public option or a Medicaid buy-in or something like that. I think all of that demonstrates that like people are still frustrated with what we're with what we have today they recognize its imperfections and you know as i think we encounter this time of year every year it feels like there has to be a simpler way to do it but there remain all of the same structural and political obstacles to making a major change that have existed for decades do you think single payer healthcare in the united states is possible <sighs> Well, that's, you know, <laughs> I never... I felt it all the way here in D.C. <laughs> I'm never comfortable prognosticating too much. But here's what I'll say. Having spent a lot of time thinking about that very question, my dissatisfying answer is, I think it is possible. I think it would be a very long ramp to get there. Like, I think the lesson of all of the history that we have discussed is that, like, sudden major changes, they're really hard, obviously, to just to write a bill that does that. It's really hard to keep the public on board with a proposal like that because people are nervous about change and they're going to hear from the healthcare industry that, you know, the government's taking control of your healthcare and you're not going to be able to get what you want. And I think we've seen that those kinds of messages can be really potent with American voters. So big, sudden change, I am very skeptical about. But we have been slowly building our way towards universal health coverage, even in this piecemeal, imperfect way. You know, it started with that core of employer-sponsored insurance. Then we added Medicare and Medicaid for the elderly and the poor. With the ACA, we expanded Medicaid to cover more poor people. We enhanced and strengthened the individual market for people who don't have one of those other programs as their options. So, like, it's been building towards universal health care. And, like, the idea of a, a public option getting created in the relatively near future doesn't feel that far-fetched to me. Biden was running on that idea during his 2020 campaign. Granted, it was clearly not that much of a priority for his administration once he actually got into office. But still, like, if Joe Biden is sort of like the litmus test for like what's pretty mainstream at any given time in American politics, like he was on board with a public option. So it's not that hard to imagine, you know, a future Democratic president making it more of a priority, getting a public option passed. And maybe then, you know, and this is the theory of some people who support public options in the short term, depending on the rules that are set for it, maybe more people 
decide to go with that public option. And maybe more organically over time, more people start gravitating to a government health plan because they find it's more cost efficient and it's simpler from an administrative perspective. Like, as you were kind of laughing at earlier, like, I think it's a pretty hard pitch for private health insurers to say, like, be wary of change because we th- make your life so easy with the way that we run things right now. And so, you know, I could, I could see that kind of long road to something like single payer. You know, the other, I think, X factor in all of this is how employers feel about it. Because like, yes, over time, you know, as costs have gone up, they have tried to shift more of those costs to workers by increasing workers' premiums, by increasing, you know, we're basically reducing the generosity of benefits by like putting workers in higher deductible plans, asking them to pay more out of pocket for their health care. But like they've they've seen their costs steadily increasing too. People who work with uh, employee benefits officers, you know, say that like, you know, for these days, you know, you have to offer health insurance, you know, and it's partly in, uh, because of the expectations of workers. And so for now, they see it just as still an essential tool for attracting talent. The same rationale uh, that led to the creation of employer-sponsored insurance in the first place. But it's at least plausible to me that maybe employers will reach a breaking point down the road. I think if employers were like, we want to be done with this, that would be kind of the the most important domino to fall, because I think that would remove a lot of the political potency of the arguments of the arguments against, you know, single payer or a version of more of a government role in providing health insurance. But at least as of now, we haven't reached that point. And so, you know, I think the, the most likely outcome for the foreseeable future is we keep slinking along with the system that we've got now and, and maybe we'll tweak around the edges, but we're not going to make major changes. I think a lot about other workarounds, in particular, I think of states because, you know, on the state level, there's kind of this room for a lot of policy experimentation. In particular, when it comes to healthcare, I'm thinking of California because Governor Gavin Newsom just signed a law that brings the state a little closer to a single-payer system. Do you think that that is a path? Do you see states moving in that direction or experimenting more with how they handle health care on an individual basis? I do think probably the most interesting experimentation for the time being will happen at the state level. And we're already starting to see that. You know, I think this California law that basically asks the state health department to come up with options for how they might achieve a single-payer system within the state is a signal of that. That's our biggest state, bigger than many countries, you know, at least seriously considering and promising to seriously study how single-payer might be achieved. Now, at the same time, like, the same challenges that have made that kind of radical overhaul really difficult at the national level also apply at the state level. You know, 10 years ago, Vermont was gung-ho about creating its own single-payer system, but they basically ultimately decided that they couldn't make the financing work. The the tax increases that they were going to have to institute to pay for their single-payer plan were going to be too high. So, you know, we'll see what report the uh, California Health Department comes up and how they, the ideas that they have for trying to work around some of those structural 
challenges. But I think it's important to remember that, like, yeah, states can have every intention of trying to set up a system like that, but the practical challenges remain significant. And we're still waiting for an individual state to figure out how they might work around those challenges. But, you know, even short of, of single payer, I think you'll continue to see states uh, experimenting with different expansions of government health coverage. You know, we have a few different public options in place now in Nevada and Washington state. Um, you know, I think people will be watching closely to see how those do, to see, you know, how well they're able to compete because those are plans that are, you know, available through the state's individual insurance marketplace. So people will be curious, you know, can they compete with the other uh, private insurance that's being sold on the marketplaces? Can they make it financially sustainable? You know, I think those experiments are still just really getting underway. I think this California experiment will be interesting to watch, especially since they're basically saying we're going to undertake a big planning process to figure out how we're going to do this. I'll be very curious to see what they'll, they come up with. And I think we'll continue to see smaller bore experimentation in the form of public options and, and other things like that at the state level. And what may begin as like a, a pilot project at the state level can sometimes eventually evolve uh, into a model for the nation. We saw that with the ACA, which was modeled very closely on what Massachusetts had been doing almost 10 years earlier. So just because uh, we're not going to get single payer in one fell swoop doesn't mean I think that we're not going to see a lot of efforts to continue to make health coverage more accessible and affordable for people. All right, Dylan Scott, thank you so much for joining us on The Weeds. Thank you. Be sure to check out the Vox Guide to Open Enrollment at vox.com slash enrollment. You can learn about the system, how to navigate your choices, and more. That's all for us today. Thank you to Dylan Scott for joining us. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Krishna Ayala engineered this episode. Serena Solon fact-checked it. Our editorial director is A.M. Hall. And I'm your host, John Clint Hill. This podcast is part of Vox, which doesn't have a paywall. Help us keep it that way by going to vox.com slash give. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.